Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome, everyone, to the Story Box. This is the place to be if you're a lover of stories learning new and interesting things, growing abundantly, and if you want to improve your overall life. My name is Jay Phantom, and I've made it my purpose to unbox and share the amazing stories from people of every profession all over the world. I'm grateful that you're here today. Let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Peace, months, namaste. Welcome everyone back to another exciting episode of the Storybox podcast. I am honestly thrilled that you guys are here today. And for those of you that know those three words that I said at the beginning and who says them, that is fantastic because I have one of my all-time favorite podcasters on the show today. His name is Rich Roll. Now, for those of you that don't know who this incredible human being is, you're about to get to know more about him. But Rich is a graduate of Stanford University and Cornell Law School. Rich is a 50-year-old accomplished vegan ultra-endurance athlete and former entertainment attorney turned full-time wellness and plant-based nutrition advocate, popular public speaker, husband, father of four, an inspiration to people worldwide as a transformative example of courageous and healthy living. In 2012, uh, Rich became a number one best-selling author with the publication of his in- inspirational memoir, Finding Ultra, Rejecting Middle Age, Becoming One of the World's Fittest Men and Discovering Himself. Taking up where the book left off in 2013, Rich launched the widely popular and one of my favorite podcasts, the Rich Roll podcast, which persistently sits atop of the iTunes top 10 list, which is crazy. In 2014, Rich and his wife, Julie Piet, uh, published the best-selling cookbook and lifestyle primer, The Plant Power Way, Whole Food, Plant-Based Recipes and Guidance for the Whole Family. And my goodness, was this a fun conversation. I don't normally get nervous in interviews, but I was very upfront and honest with Rich at the very beginning, which you're about to hear, that I was nervous uh, and rightly so because I listen to Rich on a regular basis and when I have other podcasters on, I'm always curious about what kind of question haven't they been asked or what uh, where haven't they gone before in a conversation. So I guess you could say I was nervous because I was challenged and that was a good thing. But Rich was so 
presence, so down to earth and so gracious that he he understands. And that's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite conversations uh, as well, because even though my mind went all over the place during this conversation, it was great because it's so authentic and real. And Rich shares a great deal of timeless inspirational wisdom for you all that I know is going to help many of you that are struggling here. We talk, we cover addictions, we cover uh, finding your purpose in life and, and why that is so important for uh, oneself. And uh, we also cover his book. He's got a new book out right now called Voicing Change. And it's truly a remarkable book. Highly encourage you guys to go and get it. You can only buy it from his website, which is richroll.com. And make sure that you get a copy of this. I guarantee you it is going to, you're going to spend hours in the pages because it's beautifully done, well-designed. And he's got so many amazing people that he has interviewed and, and really uncovered aspects of their life which is going to be helpful for you guys to improve your own life. And it's, it's a huge inspiration. I've, I've already spent ages in the book and I haven't even covered the whole thing because I want to take in all of this wisdom from each and every person that he has. Some of the people that he has in the book are actual alumni of the, of the story box, and which is pretty awesome to actually see. It's like, oh, I've spoken to that person, you know, uh, but I highly, once again, highly encourage you guys to go and get your own copy of this book. Uh, it doesn't ship uh, on Amazon or anything like that, so you can only get it on Rich's website. Again, uh, it's very well worth the price, guarantee you. You can also get a signed copy of it if you want. Um, but please, ladies and gentlemen, if you do get something from this episode, which I have no doubt that you will, uh, share it around. Share it to your friends and your family let everyone know. If you are a fan of Rich Roll and his show, let him know as well. Tag him uh, in, in Instagram, take a photo of this and uh, spread it around. You can also watch the full episode now over on YouTube. The links are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review before you go. And uh, I greatly appreciate each and every one of you that continue to support uh, the ever-evolving Storybox. Uh, lots of exciting things coming up in the near future. So you guys know what time it is. So instead of diving, we're going to roll into the Storybox today and listen to the timeless wisdom and the incredible story of none other than Rich Roll. Peace, Lance. Namaste. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, uh, I have to say, I've never been really been nervous in any conversation uh, that I've done, uh, and I'm nervous. <laughs> if I can nervous. be that real with you, man. Uh, it's, it's always good having other podcasters on here that ask great questions. So before we dive into your backstory, how you got started doing all these amazing things, I have one particular question I love asking all my guests at the very start, which mm. is, what does success look like for you? That's a great question. I would say for me, the, the answer to that question is always kind of morphing and evolving. Um, right now, the way I think about success <clears throat> has very little to do with 
likes or remuneration. Um, it's really about having domain and control over your time. You know, I'm very lucky that I'm in a situation now where uh, I get to wake up every day and do something that I love doing. And my business is very related to uh, following my curiosity, which is something I don't take for granted and uh, and is something that, uh, you know, has not always been the case for me. I, you know, I've worked in jobs and had careers where, you know, that was not the case. So it's, it's always uh, good to remind myself of that. So for me, you know, success is really, is, is really about, um, the free, you know, the freedom to follow the things that are, that interest you. Mm. And, and, and I think in hand in hand with that is finding a way to do that in service to other people, like taking these things that you find meaningful, um, having the, the, the liberty and the freedom to explore those things and then share them liberally uh, to the positive benefit of others. When was the moment for you that you realized this was success for you? Has it been like this, this gradual thing over time or was there a catalyst moment somewhere in your life? There's been lots of catalyst moments, big and small along the way. Um, but in terms of, of kind of coming to terms with success, I mean, that's been a very gradual thing and, and a very slow thing. And I, I think, a a thing that, that, that people don't properly appreciate in terms of like the timeline. It sort of looks like, oh, this guy is like writing these books and he's doing this podcast and it must be easy for him. But, you know, I've been podcasting for almost nine years at this point. I did it for several years, many years um, before, you know, it, it paid me a penny. I was doing it because I love doing it and because it excited me and it, it, it sort of satisfied a creative itch. Um, but I would say that when I had the opportunity in two, I guess it was around 2010 when I got my first book deal and had an opportunity to write a book, I realized that 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 was the beginning of being able to recreate my life more in alignment with the things that I cared about. Mm. Um, and that was just a very initial step. And it took many, many years before I was in a situation where I was running a business that was stable and providing for my family. And in the, in the in-between years, there were a lot of really lean years and a lot of very difficult, you know, financial um, situations that I found myself in that really tested my faith and, and, and many moments where I thought about just hanging it up and, and trying to find a job back at a law firm. You know, my former career was as a lawyer uh, and I'm, very grateful and glad that I, that I stuck it out and it's all fine now, but it was, you know, it was, it was certainly not, you know, an overnight thing. I'm kind of at that point at the moment where I'm kind of on the tipping point, like, should I actually continue doing it? Because I've, you know, starting out, I've only been doing this about a year and three months. So it's not a great deal of time. And I've seen all the growth, I've seen everything, but you know, I still get a ton of rejection. Mm -hmm. And what I'm curious about is for you, Rich, you went from a lawyer to now a successful podcast host, author, and transforming the lives of so many people. Did you ever see yourself doing any of this, like being an author, 
being the, the host that you are, asking the kind of questions that you do. Did you ever see yourself doing that? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I would say that I always enjoyed writing and I knew that I, I had a knack for it. And writing was something that I did in college um, and, and always excelled at it. And then as a lawyer, um, that's a different kind of writing, but it's something that you do every single day as a lawyer. You're trying to figure out how to articulate a point of view and, and you know, uh, lobby on behalf of a client and do that with words. So um, I've always, no matter what career I've been in, writing has always been involved. But I will tell you that when I had the opportunity to write my first book, I couldn't believe that somebody was giving me permission to do that. <laughs> like it was very surreal. Um, and at that time, I guess podcasting probably existed, but the idea that I would that I would be a podcaster, uh, let alone be successful at it, no, that that never entered entered my mind. But it's kind of like anything. Um, when enough time passes and you look in the rearview mirror, it all makes sense. And it's like, of course, this is where you ended up. And I can identify experiences that I've had along the way that have all been very instrumental and informative um, in, in, you know, sort of crafting this person that I am today. And, you know, specifically to, to podcasting, you know, I've spent thousands of hours uh, sitting in AA meetings, like listening to people tell their stories and, and, and demonstrating unbelievable courage and vulnerability. And then in turn, learning how to share my story from the podium in that context. And so that's where I think I really went to school in terms of trying to figure out what that story is and also um, learning the power of, 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 bringing voice to the authentic self within and really learning to fall in love and respect the people that could muster that courage to do that. And, and in part, like an aspect of my podcast is trying to provide people with who are not, you know, in the, in a 12 step program or trying to recover from addiction, some taste or sense of what that experience is like, because I find it to be so powerful and then as a lawyer, I took tons and tons of depositions where you sit across from somebody for hours and hours and hours and ask them questions and try to elicit you know, the information that you need. So, you know, that was kind of like my training ground for what I get to do today. Mm. And we're all grateful that you left being a lawyer to become a podcast host and having the kind of conversations that you do have. I want to go back a little bit to sort of... Uh, get some context around your story for a moment. So you were a lawyer. What ended up happening that changed for you to go into doing the career path that you're doing now? Sure. So my whole life, I was sort of on a certain kind of traditional track. Um, I grew up in a household where education was very important and I took that seriously. Uh, and 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 did my best to try to live up to familial and social expectations of what somebody of my upbringing is meant to do right like get into the best college get the good grades try to get the good summer internships then try to get into the best grad school and in my case that was law school then you get a job at a law firm and you try to become partner and never once along that path did I really spend a lot of time in self-reflection about whether this was even the right path for me? It's like, you know, mm -hmm. 
putting the ladder up against the wall and climbing it before you consider whether that's really the right wall you should be climbing up. And, and, you know, I'm, if I have any kind of special skill, it's that I know how to suffer. So even when I'm in an uncomfortable situation or one that is perhaps at odds with what I'm meant to be doing, I can still gut it out and do it. And that's what I did as a lawyer. Like I never had any true love of the law. I just felt like this is a good career path. Um, and so I did it for many, many years, uh, and, and kind of, even though I got sober at 31, spent the next many years still practicing law with the, with, with a growing understanding that I knew that I was in the wrong career path, but feeling trapped and unsure about how to really switch gears. And it wasn't until I had, you know, a bit of an existential crisis that collided with a health scare, um, shortly before I turned 40, when I really began to, for the very first time, take like honest stock of, of what I was doing and try to figure out an alternative path. And that was confusing. You know, I, there's a, there's kind of a, a yarn or a narrative that gets spun on the internet in this kind of startup entrepreneur culture, like just quit your job and follow your passion. And, you know, I always, caution people against that. Not everybody's ready to do that, nor is everybody suited for that kind of adventure. And in my case, you know, I had always been a safety seeker. I wasn't, you know, bred to be an entrepreneur or a risk taker, uh, essentially a, a pretty risk averse person. So the idea of doing something harsh, you know, or drastic, like tossing that three years of law school out the window and all the years that I'd spent, you know, learning my craft as a lawyer out the window just seemed insane to me. Um, but the more I practice law, the more I realized, like, I, I, I just need to be doing something else, but I didn't really have the skill set for anything else. Um, so the way I began to wrestle with this kind of crisis was through endurance sports. Like when I, you know, when I had that kind of epiphany moment, I changed my relationship with food and diet. I had kind of a resurgence of vitality and, and, and really got interested in, in getting outdoors and getting fit again. I'd been a swimmer in college and it was something that I kind of put in the rear view and hadn't explored in many years. And the more I did that though, at this period of time, the more I was enjoying it, and it was really that kind of solitary alone time, whether it was out trail running or on my bike, um, that I was able to kind of marinate in, you know, this dilemma that I found myself in and wrestle with those questions. And that led ultimately to, you know, some clarity about needing to walk away from that and do something else. But, you know, I married and had kids and a mortgage and car payments and all that kind of stuff at the time. So just, you know, a, a bold gesture wasn't going to work. Um, but in my case, you know, I, I, I got this book deal. I was still practicing law. I was training for ultra. I was trying to write Finding Ultra while I was practicing law and also training like 20 hours a week for these races and be a present parent and partner. And that was a hat trick. You know, that was a very, it was very difficult to do that. But I knew that that was going to be a portal to something new. Um, I didn't know that it would take, you know, another <laughs> like eight years after that before everything kind of uh, solidified to create some stability. Um, but it's always been for me just doing the next thing and then being prepared for 
whatever opportunity would then present itself. So it was really like one step at a time. Like I wrote the book, like, hey, so-and-so wants you to go. They read your book. They want you to come and speak here. So I do that. And I just trusted that every step would continue to direct me in the right direction. And that ultimately it would, it would pay off. Um, you know, I thought it would pay off a lot sooner <laughs> than it did. Uh, and, you know, I think I just needed to like, you know, burn in the fire a little bit more so that I could, you know, carry a, a vibration that was just a little bit more powerful. And that's how I kind of look at it today. There's a lot for me to unpack with that story. And the first thing that I want to sort of go down is you mentioned you got sober. So I'm assuming that you had a problem with alcohol. Where did that come from? Was it because of the long hours in law or was there some pre-composed drinking problem already? Yeah, no, the drinking started, started before that. Um, I, you know, I was not in high school. I was a good kid. I studied hard and it was all about swimming. Like I was getting up at four 30 in the morning and going to swim practice before school and then swim practice after school and studying, going to bed. So I never got in trouble in high school, but when I was a senior in high school, I started going on these recruiting trips to colleges because um, I was getting, you know, there was interest in, in, in me being a, uh, a collegiate swimmer. And it was on those trips where I got introduced to some pretty fun parties. And that was, you know, that was a new experience for me. But um, my relationship with alcohol from the get go has always been different from that of a normal person. And it's something that I was always aware of. Like I'm one of those people, and I'm sure you've heard this with other recovering alcoholics. Like the first time that I, that I got loaded, I just thought this is the solution to all my problems. Like this is how I'm supposed to feel. Everything suddenly made sense. It was like I was wrapping my body in a warm blanket and um, the roadmap for life, uh, you know, suddenly became clear. And I just wanted to feel that way all the time. And when you're young, you know, and you're in college, some of this behavior is just normal. Like you can, you can kind of get away with it because everyone's drinking and partying. Um, but, you know, I was the guy who was the last one to leave the party or trying to look for the empties after the keg was tapped out. And, and the one who had the more embarrassing stories the next day. And that's kind of fun and innocent at first. But, you know, as you progress through your 20s and suddenly you're, you're 30, it's not so cute anymore. And in my case, the, the repercussions of my drinking just continued to kind of slowly escalate over time to the point where at the end, you know, there was nothing really funny or or cool about it at all. It was just sad and pathetic and incredibly lonely to the point where I was sleeping on a bare mattress in an otherwise unfurnished apartment on the precipice of losing my job. I was drinking round the clock. My family didn't want anything to do with me anymore. I lost a bunch of friendships. I was completely unreliable. I was incapable of being in a relationship or or telling the truth or showing up when I said I was going to show up. And my life was just a house of cards that was crashing down on top of me, um, culminating in a failed marriage and you know two DUIs in two months and getting my license revoked and looking at jail time. 
until, you know, I just reached that, that moment, that moment of clarity that you also hear about with recovering alcoholics, where I just, I just realized I couldn't, I just couldn't live this way anymore. And I'd been trying to get sober in my own way, but I hadn't really um, wrestled with the profundity of this problem that I was contending with. And, you know, I met that, I met that, I met my maker with it until I was, you know, completely broken and had nowhere else to turn and ultimately ended up in a, a treatment center in rural Oregon um, in 1998. I was 31. Um, and I ended up living there for 100 days. And that experience saved my life. It uh, gave me the tools to reconfigure my life in accordance with spiritual principles. And ever since that experience, um, sobriety has been my number one priority. And, and, and so much of what I talk about on the podcast and so many of the tools that have been instrumental in transforming my life um, to this day are, are still the most important you know, tools that I turn to, to not just keep myself from drinking because it's not often that I have that kind of craving, but to maintain my emotional sobriety so that I carry the principles of, of Alcoholics Anonymous into all of my affairs, as they say. Are you ever worried that you might get addicted to alcohol again at some point? Um, well, I'm, I'm currently addicted to alcohol. I will always be addicted to alcohol. So I, I, I have not recovered from alcoholism. I am in recovery. Yeah. I am always recovering. And, you know, uh, I did have a re after 13 years of sobriety, I had a, I had a little brief relapse um, and luckily found my way right back to the program immediately, but it scared me and it reminded me and made me realize just how powerful and cunning and baffling alcohol is because I picked up and I was right back where I was, you know, in 1998, like no time had passed. And that was very frightening and a reminder that, you know, this is a this is a demon that, you know, is kind of always there. And I need to be rigorous about my sobriety in order to, you know, keep that keep that devil at bay. As they say, it's it's always doing push-ups in the background. Um, so uh, so that's something I'm very mindful about. But I'm also in the context of emotional sobriety, mindful as to how my alcoholic tendencies can find their way into other things that I do, whether it's workaholism or even my relationship with addiction sports. I, I mean, endurance sports, like you can have an addictive relationship with, with anything really. Um, so I'm always trying to calibrate that um, while also being gentle on myself. Like there are aspects of that addictive tendency that I have that can work to my benefit. Um, and, I'm cool with that, but I just have to make sure that all the other buckets in my life are being properly attended to so that, uh, um, so that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm walking the, uh, the spiritual path that, that, uh, I want to be walking. How does your spiritual practice help you with, I guess, achieving this recovery process of, of addiction and, uh, how is that? And more specifically, what is your spiritual practice? Yeah, well, it's it's rooted in it's rooted in, um, in in twelve steps, which has a lot to do with um, 
being accountable for your actions, taking responsibility for your actions, um, being rigorous in the inventory of your behavior and always identifying where you've gone awry, being quick to make amends for your transgressions, and understanding that, you know, I can't afford to harbor resentments. Like they, you know, they're the things that will take me out the door quickly. And, you know, left to my own devices, I'm a, I'm a grumpy, resentful, self-centered, uh, irascible, you know, type of person. I have to work very hard to connect with things like gratitude and patience and presence of mind. Um, these don't come easy to me, um, but I've gotten better at it um, as long as I'm, you know, on top of that program. And so um, what does it look like for me? You know, it's a practice just like anything else. Um, and when I'm spiritually fit, then I'm able to show up not just for myself in my own life, but for the people that depend on me and for, you know, the audience that I'm trying to serve through the books and the podcast. Going back to sort of like the addiction thing, I have an addictive personality myself and I struggled a lot with food, looking at food a certain way, binge eating. I was anorexic and bulimic mm. or, and that actually ended up uh, spiraling out of control. And I just didn't, I didn't even realize that it was spiraling out of control. I was kind of naive to it. And I, I just, people would tell me, you know, on one hand, you look great. The next hand, you know, you, you're going, it's out of control. You're getting worse. And then I just thought, you know, so what? I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Keep doing it. it became like this ever evolving process. And that ended, uh, I was in hospital for nine days, but you'd think mm -hmm. that after that nine day hospital visit, I would actually have changed my mindset, but it didn't like, mm -hmm. It was a wake-up call not for sure because I had a nurse ask me, she's like, why are you here? You're 23 years old. No, sorry, you're 21 years old and you're, you're in hospital. You shouldn't be in hospital. You should be out enjoying life. And I didn't have an answer for it. I just said, I love my running. I love my, my restrictive eating and nothing's going to change. But I love how you, you mentioned you're still recovering because it doesn't ever go away. You just mm -hmm. learn how to manage it better. And I'm always, always trying to help as many people that are still struggling with addiction of some kind in their life to get over it, to manage it better, I guess. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you, you sharing that. Um, and so how did you, how did you get to the other side of it then for yourself? Well, it took a long time and I'm still like, I still have to catch myself. Like there are days where I notice that I'm slipping a little bit. And on those days I have to go back to, and I remember being in the hospital bed. I remember the people that came to me and, and asked me, why are you, why are you doing this to yourself? Like having a good support group around you as well like who you associate with is 100% uh, accurate. Like you will become those people if you, yeah. So for me, I'm still managing it. I'm still learning the best ways to manage it. Like for me, I want to still be able to exercise. I want to be able to live a healthy lifestyle. I want to be able to do the things that I love to do. 
that yeah it's it's a process man like it it's hard because when one addiction stops then there's like a lot of um yeah there's there's a lot of there's a big chance that a new one will actually come up so well it's it's whack-a-mole right so it's not that it's not like the alcohol or the eating that's the problem or the lack of eating that's the problem those are the solutions to the underlying problem the bigger problem which is the you know emotional dis-ease that you're experiencing right so for you food restriction was a way of trying to gain control over that and manage your emotional disposition for me it was alcohol and other other things but the recovery process is really about getting to and addressing that underlying emotional disposition so that the impulse to alter your state in an unhealthy way begins to dissipate. And food is particularly difficult because unlike drugs or alcohol, abstinence is you know, not only not the solution, that's actually the problem in your case, right? You've got to figure out how to eat and do it in a in a in a balanced way. Mm. Um, on top of that, you're trying to manage it with a uh, a brain that caused the problem to begin with, which creates the body dysmorphia. When you look in the mirror, you think you look you don't see yourself in the way that that objectively other people see you. Mm. So food is tough. It's a really it's a it's a hard one. I've got plenty of friends who you know had a a version of that experience. There's a whole underlining story that I didn't share that kind of led up to me struggling with food and and under eating and all that sort of stuff. But it kind of leads me to my next question for you, Rich, because you are plant-based. You are an advocate about all that, which is pretty incredible. And I've had conversations with people that are plant-based and I'm always enjoying why people decide to go plant-based in the first place. And for you, I'm curious, how has that helped you with um, your managing? Has it actually helped you manage your addictions at all? Like with the kind of foods that you do eat? Interesting question. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good question. You know, I don't think of diet as being, I don't over index for diet how it, as, it, as it relates to addiction per se. Um, I do think there is, you know, some people think like, oh, you know, Rich was an alcoholic and then he went vegan and became an athlete and it cured him of alcoholism. Like that's not, that is not the case at all. Like I'd been sober for many, many, many years before I changed my diet and got into endurance sports. Um, so I don't want people to be confused into believing that diet is a solution protocol to an addiction problem, at least in with respect to alcoholism. Um, but I will say this, which is when, you know, I had been eating a terrible fast food diet for many years. I was 50 pounds overweight. I was never like morbidly obese, but I was like a hefty kind of fat guy, you know, working at a law firm and feeling like shit all the time until I had this, you know, kind of um, health slash uh, emotional crisis. And 
I discovered plant-based eating after I tried a whole bunch of other diets. It wasn't like the first thing that I tried. It wasn't like, I wasn't looking for it. You know, I was actually trying to avoid it because it sounded so restrictive. Um, but when I started eating this way, I had, I felt amazing and I couldn't argue with that. Like I just felt better eating only plants than any of the other things that I tried. And where the addiction piece kind of comes in is it was easy for me to make that leap and to do it kind of pretty quickly and dramatically because I applied some of the same sort of mental principles that I apply to recovery in that eating a plant-based diet is relatively binary in the way that abstaining from drugs and alcohol is binary. Like you're either drinking or doing drugs or you're not like you, you can't like do a little bit of drugs or drink once in a while and claim to be sober. For me, it's about hundred percent abstinence and a plant-based diet. I can just say, well, I don't eat animal products like period, just like I don't drink or do drugs. So I can step over that line. And that's a very simple rule that I adhere to. Now, within that, you can still eat a horribly unhealthy diet that doesn't involve animal products. Um, but that was at least an initial baseline that helped me like wrap my head around it. And then over the years, you know, I've perfected it and continue to iterate on it. And, you know, I'm now I've been plant-based for 14 years and it's still agreeing with me and I feel great. And I'm 54 and I can still go out and work out really hard and challenge myself physically. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of gym work lately. I put on like muscle mass. That's a big thing. People say, oh, you're vegan. You're not going to be able to put on any muscle, but I've had no problems with that whatsoever. And what I love about this lifestyle is that it continues to reveal itself to me because I initially adopted it for very personal health reasons. Like I didn't want to feel lousy. I didn't really have much care or concern for the welfare of the animals or the planet. I was just thinking about myself, but now the environmental implications of the foods that we eat and the suffering that's entailed with the choices that we make three times a day has become very important to me. And when you're eating a plant-based diet, what's great about it is not only is it better for you in a health context, it's also better for the planet. And it's certainly better for the animals, right? Who don't have to participate in being slaughtered for them to end up on your plate. So that's kind of how I think about it now. Do you get much backlash from people? And what do you do with the negative side of things when people sort of have something against you being plant-based? You know, over the years, I've gotten a little bit of that, but I don't get a lot of that. Um, and now there's so many more plant-based athletes than there were when I started this. So when I began, it was more like a curiosity. And then I started to kill it in these endurance races and that attracted a bunch of attention. And certainly there's always going to be detractors or people that are telling me I would have done much better if I adopted some other diet. And I really kind of opt out of that conversation altogether. And I think one of the reasons that I'm not on the receiving end of a lot of criticism is I don't overly proselytize this diet. I, I don't get on a microphone and tell everybody that they should go vegan or, you know, shellac people because they're not like what I learned in sobriety and what keeps me sober is staying out of other people's business. It's not incumbent upon me to take anybody else's inventory or to hold judgment on other people's decisions. So I'm not the person who's out there, you know, shouting into a megaphone about this, that, and the other and go vegan. What I try to do is be a lighthouse. Like I try to live my life 
in accordance with my values and my principles. And I try to excel mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and in turn, attract people who would be interested in how I'm doing all these things to me, as opposed to chasing people down and trying to convince them that I'm right and they're wrong. Like, I'm not interested in changing your mind. Like, Mm. I know what I'm doing is right for me. If you want to hear about it, I'm happy to tell you about it. But then it's up to you to make a decision for yourself as to how you want to live. And, and, you know, that's not to say that we don't need activists and we don't need people who are shouting into megaphones. I think we need all of those voices. It's just not my particular blueprint to be that type of person. Mm. And that's one of the things that I love and respect about you, Rich, is that you don't try and do that. Even like when you listen to the show, you're very conscious about what you say to the guests. You're very conscious how you respond to the guests and their beliefs and you don't go and put on your own on them at all. Like you just allow them to share. I think that's what I try and do as well. Like I think people see me and my beliefs and they're like, well, you're that way so that means I'm not going to listen to you because you are, you, you're going to be like that on the show. It's not like that at all. Like the pla- the story box or even, even your show, Rich, I believe is ultimately a place where people can just share stories, have great, deep and meaningful conversations. And if people want to share their beliefs, so be it. Like we all have the power to believe what we want to believe. We all, I guess most of us that are listening are adults. So I don't think it's fair or it's right to judge or to belittle someone for what they do. Um, and basically it goes, it goes against like if you're attacking them for what they do, it's really attacking their purpose ultimately as a human being. And I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't condone it. <coughs> and It's also not effective. If you're trying to get somebody to see your point of view, attacking them is really not a, the strategy that's going to pay dividends. <laughs> anyway. It's not going to work, no. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm always like mindful when I do have conversations, like the reason why I asked people at the beginning, is anything off limits? It's to show that kind of respect, just just in case, okay, if something is off limits, I won't even go there. You know, like maintaining that person's dignity and that person's truth, whether or not, like I might disagree with them. I've never, on the show, I've never actually disagreed with anyone. I'm like, okay, fantastic. <laughs> Let's move on to the next thing. Um, which kind of leads me to my my next question for you, Rich. Uh, you are an ultra runner and some people, even myself, I am a runner and I'm always curious, like why, on the wor- why in the world do an ultra and what goes through your mind when you start, or, no, sorry, before, then you start, during and then after? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think as to the why, you know, I uh, what interests me about the ultra endurance world is that it's this incredible template to explore personal possibility. Like ultras are are like proving grounds for human potential, and I don't mean that just physically. Like, can you run this distance? Um, I think anybody who does an ultra undergoes 
kind of this hero's journey, you know, where they're forced to meet themselves in the most vulnerable place possible and to test themselves in situations that you're just not going to find in the normal world. And, and, and when you come out of that kind of experience, you are not just more physically fit, you are more mentally, emotionally, and spiritually fit. You know, I, I just think that they're, they're great vehicles for exploring um, the interior self. And I mean that in the most meaningful way. And, that, and that's what I find attractive. And that's why I think you find, you know, people that are that find themselves in the ultra world, they're seekers, they're fundamentally seekers, there's a lot of recovering addicts and alcoholics in the in, in the endurance community and the ultra endurance community. And I think that's, there's no mis it's, you know, I understand why that is. Um, in terms of, of, you know, how you approach a race and endure a race and, and, and complete it. It's kind of like you bite off this thing that's really scary and you're not sure that you can do it. And then at least in my case, like I set about a plan to prepare as best I can for something like that. So that when I tow the starting line, I already know that I can do it. Like it's already a foregone conclusion. It's just going through the motions to complete it, which is the celebration really of the journey and the preparation it took to get there. You know, when you see Laird Hamilton drop in on some insanely huge wave, he's able to do that only because he worked his way up so gradually that that wave doesn't feel that intimidating or that huge for him because he's been doing it so often so many times so that he's, you know, fully equipped to be able to handle something like that. And I think ultras are, you know, analogous to that in some regard. Do you feel like, you've unlocked your best self yet or is there still something more to come for you i hope not <laughs> I, I hope yeah i mean no i think i think we're all on this journey to try to you know unleash the best version of ourselves and that's a journey that you know we will ply until we find ourselves in the grave you know i, I i'm certainly um not a perfect person i'm always working on my character defects and things that I could do better, um, things that I can master that I have no mastery over. You know, I'm not sure that I have anything um, I feel I need to prove to myself in the ultra endurance world. Like I, I've kind of pivoted away from that. I mean, I love it and I'll probably, you know, race, you know, as long as I can race, but, but, you know, I, I'm not putting all like, you know, there was a point in my life where I, that was everything to me. And I was putting, you know, 25 hours a week into training for those things. Like, I don't, that's not the life that I'm living now. Like I have other things that interest me. And now it's all about how can I be of maximum service in the most meaningful way to the largest number of people. So whether that's a podcast or a book or, you know, giving a talk or, or whatever it is, like that's kind of where my head's at. And I have plenty of work to do. Um, to, you know, continue to develop mastery over that. Do you have any regrets? Um, you know, they say in AA, like, we will not regret the past yeah. or wish to shut the door on it. And, you know, I've done a lot of regrettable things in my life and I've worked very hard to overcome that regret. So now I look back on them with fondness and gratitude but I've certainly made mistakes that I wish that I hadn't made. And, you know, like I said, like I, I, I'm, I'm always very careful to ensure that people know, like, I don't, 
I don't speak from any position of authority. Like I host this podcast because I'm continuing to grow and learn. And I want to sit across from people who can, who can teach me, you know, I'm not there to like profess my wisdom to the audience and tell them like, here's what you need to do. And this is how you do this. You know, like that's something that a teacher feels comfortable doing, but I don't really see myself as a teacher. Like I'm a seeker and I put myself in the position of the audience. So yeah, I've done regrettable things. There are things that I, I wish I could tell you, I didn't, I don't regret any of my mistakes. Of course I do. I have regrets. Um, but we can't change the past. All we can do is change, you know, our, 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 our future. And we do that by trying to be as present as we can in the moment in which we find ourselves. Mm, very true. What have you, what would you say is your greatest achievement and why? Hmm. I think my greatest achievement is just achieving long-term sobriety, you know, without, without sobriety, I wouldn't be able to do any of these things. I'm sure I would not be alive now. Um, it's been the hardest thing that, that I've ever done. Um, but it's been, you know, the engine that allows me to do everything else. And, and without it, like there's, there's nothing. So that's why it's still my number one priority and, and, and why I feel so passionate, uh, you know, about always talking about it. Who you've had a lot of conversations with many different amazing people who has given you a renewed perspective on life, whether it's been on the podcast or whether it's been outside of the podcast. Um, I'm trying to think of a dramatic example. I mean, everybody that I talk to offers me something to think about. Um, and that all goes into the soup. You know, it's not like, oh, well, Andrew Huberman said this. So now I'm working on this. Like it all just kind of is percolating there. And, and it, it's hard for me to separate out like, oh, this person changed my perspective on this or this person changed my perspective on that. Um, you know, I, I guess top of mind right now would be Stephen Pressfield because his books were so instrumental in in the earlier part of my career and trying to wrap my head around like what I wanted to do next and having him on the podcast recently was like such a beautiful full circle moment and a, and a, and a gift. So he has been like, and I said this on the show, like more than any other person that I, that I had never met before probably had the most profound effect on, on, on my life in terms of how I think about and practice creative expression. If you could, ask a question to anyone alive or dead, who would it be? Why? And what oh question would you God. ask them? That's impossible to answer that. Uh, <laughs> what que any question to any person ever? Yes. Anyone that you've dreamed of, thought of, oh uh, any, anyone. That's so hard. You're I love asking a question to podcasters. <laughs> um, Man, how do I answer that? Well, what is a question specifically that you have always wanted to know the answer to and someone who you feel like you haven't actually spoken to yet could give you that answer? 
Because mm. you ask a lot of great questions. It's funny because I don't think of it in terms of asking questions, like I'm having conversations, but I don't make a list of questions. Like, here's the question that I want answered. Like, I'm curious about the person, but it's never, it's never like question focused. Um, you know, if you want to just get like super macro, it's like, let's sit down with, you know, let's sit down with the Buddha and, you know, get him to answer. Like, what is it all about, man? <laughs> you know, like, what is, what is the meaning, dude? Yeah. Tell me, but all these people have written about these things. You know, I'm not sure that, that, uh, you know, and uh, answering that question could be better than anything that's already been written in ancient texts. So you mentioned there that going into a conversation, you don't have like a list of questions. You're just very curious. Uh, have you ever been in the moment and just gone, Oh crap, I've lost it. And, uh, what did that, how did that, like, how did you get it back? <laughs> yeah, a couple of times. I mean, I found that, that um, when that happens and it happens every once in a while, it's because I'm caught up in my ego and I'm not, I'm not present and I'm not paying attention. I'm worried about what the guest thinks of me. I'm worried about what the audience is going to think if I, don't come up with something clever to ask. I'm caught up in my, you know, in, in all these, all the noise of my head that has to do with ego and approval and the like. And so my preparation for a show is to try to, I prepare as much as possible. And then I try to remove all of that and then just show up and be present for whatever wants to happen. Like if you're at a dinner party and you're sitting across from someone, you got, you're having a conversation with your friends. You never think, like, oh my God, I can't think of anything to say. Like that never happens, right? That only happens when you've like constructed this false, you know, fake, like pressure cooker environment where you feel like you have to, you have to, you have to put on a performance, right? And if you can alleviate yourself of that pressure and um, just be authentic to who you are, a lot of that goes away. So I always ask to just be a channel for, um, you know, the, the best version of what this can possibly be. And I try to get out of the way. It's the ego that causes all of those problems. Which is good advice for me. <laughs> like, mm. I, I love what Larry King said, the late great Larry King. He's like, I never learned anything when I was talking. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, people have asked me, so Jay, when you're going into a big interview, say like a Tony Robbins or a Matthew McConaughey, how much did you actually prepare? And, you know, it's interesting, like for my conversation with Matthew, I read his book twice over. I wrote notes. I'm like, this is the kind of questions I'm going to ask him. And then literally when we started talking, stripped it all away. And we mm -hmm. just like had this organic conversation, which ended up being one of the best ones that I've ever had. And, you know, I think the pressure cooker is the moment you press record and you go, oh, crap, now we've got to go on now. <laughs> I've got to ask this person a question. So that authenticity is, is really valuable. So Yeah, if you're holding on too tightly, then you're robbing yourself of the possible miracle that can ensue. Like if you had this list of questions for Matthew and you're like, I got to ask him these questions 
and he's going off on some beautiful monologue, but you're so caught up in your head about your questions, you miss the whole thing. And then you end up cratering it because you can't just let it go and be present for what's happening, right? So one adage that I find to be very helpful is to your point of like, do you ever have a brain freeze and you don't know what to ask next? If you're actually listening to the person, you'll always know what the next thing to say is, right? It's only when you take yourself out of the moment and you start spinning in your mind that you end up with some kind of brain fog and confusion, right? Yeah. I'm always mindful of my guest time as well. Like it's, for me, I have so many questions that I do want to ask them. And then even in the moment, they come up with, so many great responses to just one question. And I'm like, oh, there's so many great avenues I can go down here. So my mind is trying to pick which avenue to actually go down whilst also being mindful of the time. Because mm-hmm. honestly, like if I if I wanted to and if I had the guest permission, I'd go for hours. Because <laughs> one, one thing that I have a problem with is, Rich, I can talk like there is no tomorrow. Sometimes it might, might not make sense at all, but I'll still say it <laughs> and why not? Right. <laughs> well, then you have the right, you have the right job. You have the right job for yourself, man. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent, man. Right. Yeah. So I, I do, I do want to be mindful of your time because you know, you're very busy. Um, Three more quick final questions for you, if you don't mind. Your, mm-hmm. your new your new book, Voicing Change. Uh, it's a powerful reminder of the conversations that we do need to be having. And I'm curious for you, what have you noticed is the most powerful conversation that we should be having more of? I think it depends on on who you're talking to, because that can take many forms. Um, but overall, the kind of overarching, you know, mantra that I like to say is that is that um, meaningful conversation matters. You know, whether it's about something small or large, it all matters. And I think that, you know, in this moment in which we're seeing a breakdown in productive conversation, and we're seeing unprecedented, you know, division, um, whether those lines are drawn politically or over religion or what have you, um, I despair over uh, this increasing inability of human beings to find a way to communicate in a healthy manner. And if we can't course correct that, I don't see how we move forward as a society. And what I try to do with the podcast in the sense that I have, you know, from what you do, is that the way forward is to have these kinds of conversations, um, to be able to meet people where they're at and to uh, engage in the necessary nuance with a level of maturity and consciousness that um, allows other people to see that even if two people don't see eye to eye on a certain issue, that they can still find a way to break bread and to come away from that experience um, fulfilled in some way or another. Mm-hmm. And I think that that 
is something that's bred into us as human beings dating back to as far as humanity has ever existed. Like we need to return to the campfire, you know, where the villagers sat across from each other and swap stories. And we don't have that anymore. We have Twitter where we bicker and we fight and we don't listen. And that is not a, you know, uh, a situation that's going to end well. So that's why podcasting, I feel so you know passionate about podcasting and why I think it's so powerful and why I think it's become so popular because there is something inside of us that craves that, that needs that. And when we find it, we're like, this is nourishment. This is the nourishment that I'm not getting in my social media feeds or in, you know, the interactions that I'm having throughout my day with the, you know, the person behind the cash register or, you know, the customer service person on the other end of the phone. And in order to avail ourselves of this opportunity, we got to slow down, right? We got to take the time and just allow these conversations to wash over us. And um, I think it's important. I really, really do. Do you believe that change is on the cards within your lifetime, like this kind of change you're talking about, or more like another 100 years down the line? Um, I think we're in, in there, are, there are positive and negative forces out there warring for our attention. Unfortunately, the negative forces are much more addictive and they're more easily monetized. So they are winning the war, the, this war at the moment. Uh, but I have faith in humanity, you know, and I think to my earlier point, the fact that long form podcasting is such a popular medium right now is something that gives me hope. Um, I've also been paying a lot of attention to Clubhouse. And I think what's going on in Clubhouse um, is similar in that regard. Like, groups of people getting together to talk, you know, in the middle of the day in real time without any kind of post-production or editing, like what a cool thing. Um, and I think that that is humanity um, trying to save itself, like figuring out these ways to keep us connected in the midst of the pandemic where we can't way that we would like to, or that we need to, to, be healthy human beings. So time will tell. Um, if humanity still exists in 100 years, I'd probably call that a win. <laughs> you know, we, we got big existential threats against us right now, very big problems that we need to solve. Um, but I believe in people. And if, if I've learned anything over my 54 years and my almost nine years of podcasting is that there are a lot of amazing individuals out there carrying a powerful vibration. The prophets do walk among us and um, and I believe in our collective power to solve our problems, save ourselves and create the sustainable um, world that, that, that we not only need, but that I think that we deserve. Mm, that's powerful. I hope that it, it does happen soon. That's just my personal point of view because I, I do believe we have gone off track a lot in many ways that's why we have a lot of mental health issues and more so today there's so many kids that are struggling with mental health and and looking back to when i was a kid and that wasn't that long ago i didn't struggle with it 
So six-year-olds, mm. five-year-olds are dealing with uh, traumas, with depression, anxiety, and all kinds of horrendous things. And you just look at the short space of time that has taken that has taken place in, and now they're dealing with social media because I didn't have social media growing up, and it's like I'm only 24. Mm-hmm. So put that into perspective. I think you're right. I think we do need to keep having these kinds of conversations to go deep, to hope that people will listen to them and actually take action. And um, yeah, Rich, I, I just appreciate you for having these kinds of conversations and, and doing um, doing the work that you're doing. So where can people buy your, buy your new book, by the way? Um, thank you, Jay. Uh, yeah, so Voicing Change is my latest book. It's basically a coffee table compendium of the podcast. Um, It's something you could leave out and open up to any page. It's excerpts from 50 of my favorite guests over the years with um, some essays contributed by some of those guests, um, my thoughts, of course, and then excerpts from those conversations. And we uh, self-published this book. So it's only available on my website. Uh, it's not on Amazon or anywhere else. So you can just find it at richroll.com slash VC. And we ship globally. Shipping, unfortunately, is expensive to, <laughs> to places like Australia. Um, and when you're not on Amazon and everyone's used to free shipping, there's a lot of grousing about that. We, we don't make any money off shipping. There's nothing I can do about it. We're trying to find some more affordable shipping options. But for the meantime, yeah, shipping is, is a thing. I think this book is worth the price, though. So I've actually mm. got mine on checkout, believe it or not. <laughs> I did this before okay. jumping on. Yeah. So, and shipping was like 37 bucks, express shipping to Australia for those people <sighs> wondering how much, <laughs> which is not much, to be honest with you, it's not much at all. So my final question- It's more than I would like it to be. Yeah, I, I can imagine. <laughs> but you're, you're such a generous guy, man. So I know, I know for a fact that you would like it to be a lot lower than what it is. Um, yeah. But Rich, my final question for you, this is my all time favorite question. I ask all my guests at the very end. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment, it's a hypothetical one, but imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of an argument. We've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Um, that's a great question. I think that, that uh, I would want the film to show and say that, uh, that I lived my life authentically and that I gave in the service of others and that I cared for the people and took care of the people that I love. It's a beautiful way to end that conversation. Rich Roll, rolling on <laughs> in, in his life and, and uh, on, on the show today. So thank you so much for coming on the Storybox podcast and sharing your story. Thank you, Jay. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you 
for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.